0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 13th official Seven Investing podcast. Our mission here at Seven Investing is to empower you to invest in your future. And we do that by providing what we believe are our seven most timely recommendations in the stock market every month for just $17. But we also offer some excellent and fun free content like this very podcast. I'm Seven Investing founder and CEO, Simon Erickson. I'm joined on this podcast by my team of fellow Seven Investing advisors, Austin Lieberman, Matt Cochran, and Steve Symington. Gentlemen, it's always a pleasure to have you here on the podcast.
1: Doing great. Hey, Simon. Thanks, Simon. Just, Thanks for having us. Just put deodorant on. I'm ready.
0: Let's do this. Excellent. (laughs) On that note, we're going to talk today. This is a continuation of our Investing 101 series that we've been doing for our podcast. And we're going to focus this afternoon on how to pick good investments. This is prompted by an interesting statistic that the number of individual accounts on Robinhood, which is a brokerage where you can actually buy and sell securities, has increased 30% from 10 million to 13 million accounts during just the past six months. Now that's on pace with other large brokerages like TD Ameritrade and Fidelity. So there's a lot of new accounts that are out there and a lot of people wondering how to find good investments. We'll talk about that in a moment, but let's first get warmed up with a couple other topics as well. The first is what's driving the markets higher? Because we have seen in recent weeks that both the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ composite index have both increased in value. And these are market weighted indexes for both of them, which means that the largest companies have a larger driving of what's pushing those returns. And we've actually seen that the companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Apple have actually been driving the NASDAQ from 9,000 to 10,000 in recent weeks. Austin, let's start with you on this one. We've seen the larger companies getting bigger, but what do you take about the rise in the markets in these last couple of weeks? Yeah, uh,
1: this feels like something we've talked about almost every podcast we've done. And I mean, I guess that makes sense because it's on a lot of people's minds, right? And and so today, the day we're recording this, uh, Friday, June 12th, the market has been up and down in the last two days, so uh, the numbers, we're talking about might not be exact, but so it was about the NASDAQ rising from 9,000 to 10,000. I think it's a little bit off 10,000, but the idea is still the same, right? Like what is the deal um, with this run up? So for me with the NASDAQ specifically, um, Sean Brown, the the CEO of YCharts, shared out a chart or a a table that's actually from YCharts, they built it. And so it talks about the top 10 stocks that contributed to the NASDAQ composite's last 1,000 points. And just like you said, Simon, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google were the top four. And Apple, number one, attributed 70 of those 1,000 points uh, with a return of about 8% since May 13th. And then Amazon attributed 49 of those points with a, with a uh, return of 6%. And then, and this is the point I want to get to, is if we go down to the uh, sixth the sixth highest contributor, and I believe that's Comcast, CMCSA, I think that's Comcast, uh, attributed 23 points with a 23% return. So the key there, Apple and Amazon contributed far more with less return. So why is that? And that gets to... The the thing I want to talk about is just the key takeaways uh, of what drives the Nasdaq Composites returns. Just because if we have an understanding of that, then it starts to make sense why this this composite is up a thousand points. Um, looking at it, and so this is from Investopedia, but the Nasdaq is basically a large market cap weighted index of more than two thousand five hundred stocks, and the market cap weighted means that larger companies have a much higher influence on the makeup and the return of, of the composite. And so now it makes sense that Apple, Amazon, and Facebook, even though they've returned less, have made up most of those uh, the returns for that index. And so a little bit more about the, the composite is it's uh, nearly 50% technology. So when we think about the companies that are probably going to succeed during COVID and after COVID technology companies that are allowing uh, people to move to the internet and create cloud applications and, and run servers in the cloud and work from home. It makes sense that those companies are going up. So all of that checks out with me. Um, and yeah, I mean, that to me, the, the rise in the NASDAQ, who knows if it gives back a little bit or whatever. It's a little bit justified that the NASDAQ is, is up. Um, and it, and it makes sense that Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft, the top five companies, five of the biggest companies in the world are the ones that have driven most of that return.
0: Matt, a lot of a lot of investors might be afraid of investing in those large companies, but we see a lot of those at the top getting bigger and providing great returns. How do you think about investing in large cap stocks?
2: Uh, well, that's—I uh, I think some of them are going to be the largest beneficiaries of the pandemic. I mean, the, the macro trends in the economy were already favoring those companies, and you can even go down further down that list, Simon, to like Cisco and Intel, um, you know, that were also on that list of the top ten companies contributing towards the NASDAQ's rise, and all of them were already benefiting in the economy at large. But the pandemic-induced economic sh- shutdown only accelerated the business world's digital transformation. So all these companies benefit in some shape or form from this change. On top of that they have high margin high margin recurring revenue streams, you know, cash rich balance sheets, you know, um, so I don't really know if we should be surprised by any of these companies leading a rally and making this list. And the exchange that hosts these companies will will naturally benefit from that.
0: Yeah, I think that that both of those comments make a lot of sense. I think our takeaway from this first point for people that might be new to investing is that when you hear something like the NASDAQ or the S&P 500, that is a market cap weighted index. That means that the companies that are the largest, like Austin just pointed out, uh, have a larger share of that pizza, of its overall returns. And like Matt just pointed out, the companies at the top, that that shouldn't be something that scares you away as an investor. A lot of times those companies are actually posting the best returns. Uh, Steve, let's jump uh, to a second topic and change gears here because another really large company out there that a lot of investors are familiar with is Berkshire Hathaway. Of course, led by Warren Buffett, many regard him as one of the greatest investors of all times. Uh, But we've kind of seen some data points that Berkshire Hathaway has been underperforming uh, several other broad-based indices, not just the S&P, which it is actually underperforming over the past decade, when you look at Berkshire stock individually versus the S and P, but also broad-based indices such as the Nasdaq Biotechnology ETF, the MSCI Retailing ETF, or even the Semiconductor ETF and even the Finance ETF, this is something that Berkshire has been underperforming for a long time. We've kind of always held on to the ethos that Berkshire was an excellent investment. We all love Warren Buffett, but what do you what do you think about Berkshire's returns in recent years?
3: Well. I think in light of, okay, when, when we launched Seven Investing in March, it was the end of an 11-year bull run, right? And Buffett has long admitted that Berkshire does better with the wind in its face. That's a quote, Um it's a defensive company, really. Many of the businesses and many of his investments are are defensive and value-oriented in nature. And it tends to outperform the most when markets aren't rallying hard. That's when it sort of differentiates itself. So I guess in in retrospect, given his defensive stance, it's only natural that Berkshire would underperform over the course of this massive bull run that lasted more than a decade. And as the markets rallied again, um, that it kind of makes me... um, A little sad that he gets so much hate uh, in times like this and you know that people can point out investment flubs of his and and he's the first to admit those Uh, but like airlines you know selling them near the bottom and then missing the big rally but uh, I tweeted something last week that uh, that really I'm convinced that he doesn't and shouldn't regret uh, selling an investment when his perceived risk based on his research is too great to hold it in the portfolio. And, uh, you know, anytime I ever sell a stock, I make it a point not to sit there and, you know, I don't waste time staring at the stock and, you know, lamenting it if it rallies. And, uh, you know, I've talked to uh, a lot of great investors who've who've said something similar. You know, they sell a stock, they move on. And uh, if it does rally and you look back, you learn from it and you become a better investor. But you can't regret your research and you can't be... um, that, that will turn you into uh, a cautious, nervous investor.
0: It's probably misguided when some people are out there giving Warren Heat. You know, it's it's one thing. It, it, Warren Buffett is clearly an incredible investor. And I, I think that maybe part of this also is really that there are segments of the market that are that are poised to perform better than others, right? All yeah. the market as it's as as a whole is the market is not just going to perform uniformly. And Buffett you know, has invested heavily in years past, either just in acquiring these companies or investing huge stakes into things like airlines, into things like railroads, into operating assets. And he's really missed a lot of the opportunities in technology. And he said so himself. And we've seen the shift in the world's lar- largest market caps, the largest companies in the S&P 500, as Matt and Austin just talked about, are technology companies. these are the Amazons, these are the Facebooks, these are the Apples. And that's something that we have not seen Berkshire participate in a lot of those gains. I think that's probably one of the big factors of the underperformance.
2: The other thing, you know, working against Berkshire is its sheer size. You know, it's much harder for Berkshire to find an investment that can move its needle
0: than it is for, say, like
2: Markel, you know, or other uh, investors like uh, that try to run a a business in a similar fashion. Uh, You know, the sheer size really works against it. Like, you know, I've heard Buffett talk a number of times, like, how much easier it would be, you know, with smaller sums of money that you're trying to invest than when you're trying to invest $125 billion. Yeah.
3: And that's why, you know, the topic of mini Berkshire Hathaways, uh, it's a, it's a proven investing methodology and it works best if you're a small company. And, uh, you know, there's, there's one of them I actually recommended as my first recommendation for Seven Investing. And uh, that was in March. And uh, it, it, you know, that's, that's why uh, you just follow that three-tiered structure
0: that they, that they use for, predictably generating shareholder value. Uh, yes, and, indeed. And, and Warren, don't let us just sing your praises. Please come on the podcast and set the record straight for everybody. We're obviously big fans of you. Or even better, Warren, leave us a review for our podcast. Leave us a review for Seven Investing Podcast. Because we we'll know you. that one five-star came from him.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, let, let's shift yeah. gears a little bit. Hold on a second. So I got one thing oh, to one say Oh, one more comment. One more comment from Austin. The, the,
1: of course, I have something to say, right? Um, the, the last thing about Berkshire, and I haven't asked Warren this. The next time I talk to him, I'll ask him. But I would imagine a lot of Berkshire shareholders have owned stock in it for a very long time. And so it's to me, it's almost like a relatively, it's still an equity. It's still a stock. So there's risk, inherent risk. But it's almost like a a safe haven place to put your money where pretty sure it's not going to go to zero. There's also a floor because we know that uh Buffett has said he, you know, he's gonna buy back shares at a, a certain point of book value or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're a growth, if you're an investor wanting growth, like you might not be interested in, in Berkshire, but there's a whole lot of investors who have accumulated a lot of money over the years that are probably just fine continuing to own shares with the safety and the potential to grow their capital as well. So like I I mean, I don't know. I'm sure he cares, but I don't even know if Warren Buffett cares that much about outperforming the index at, at this point, which he, is- he
3: said in a couple of his last annual reports, he expects he'll outperform, but just at a smaller margin than he did when he was his smaller. But, uh, and speaking of investors who continue to buy Berkshire stock, actually fun little tidbit, Markel, uh, Tom Gaynor, the co-CEO and chief investment officer there, uh, has made Berkshire held Berkshire as their single largest port, uh, portfolio holding, uh, in in their investment portfolio, so uh, there's a lot of good investors who still own the stock, and but it's it's more defensive than a lot of investors want to um, want to buy because it's not you know really fun stock to hold. It's just not that volatile. So
0: it, there is power in thinking long term, and, and let's mm-hmm. talk about some of those new investors too, Steve. You know because we have seen. Like we said, there's a a lot more individual investors that are now putting money to work in the stock market right now. And we want to try to focus the second half of this podcast on at least what we think are good opportunities to find really good long-term equity investments, good stocks to buy. And so the first part of this is, is really focused around where do we find our information? And perhaps we can even key this up with a question we just got from Twitter. Thank you to Dan Block. Uh, for asking what websites or publications offer the best comprehensive look at companies. So let's let's start this off. And Steve, I'll start it back with you again on this one. But you know, what are you looking for out there? If you're new to investing, uh, what's a good place to start for finding information about companies?
3: Fantastic place to start um, for me is SEC filings. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of subscriptions. I'll let you guys tell them what, what websites you watch. But uh, really... I spend a lot of time reading SEC filings. So, annual reports, um, quarterly reports, you know, 10Ks, 10Qs, uh, 8K filings um, for stuff, and you can read them. This is the kind of stuff that a lot of people ignore. Uh, And, and, you know, some of these reports are hundreds of pages, but uh, I read them constantly. And these are places where the company has to be honest about the state of their business. Uh, They'd be honest with their risks and all, rather than framing developments in ways you would expect in in say an investor presentation or a press release, uh, these are great places to to find um, valuable information uh, about the companies you're researching.
0: Yep. And just to add to that, sec.gov, sec.gov is a great resource to, to find all those filings that are required for publicly traded companies. If you want to check out the top right company filings. Uh, Matt, how about you? What 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 kind of research do you do you look for out there? Uh,
2: once you're interested in a company, I mean, it's very similar. Like uh, the first stop you I think you go to is the investor relations page for that company. And you can, uh, I the first thing I look at, if I'm not familiar at all with the company, but like, I've heard it's a good idea and I wanna learn more is um, let the latest earnings report. I wanna see like how fast is its revenue and earnings growing currently? Uh, what are its margins currently? And, and just real quickly, just look at some of the brief numbers. And then the next thing I almost always do is um, is go to the 10K. And at the very least, before you even dive into the numbers, I wanna read the business description and really understand it. Um, for a lot of these companies, like especially software companies, or, or tech companies that I have a hard time understanding, like a valuable resource I found is YouTube. So I've gone on, like when I, when I've been researching, uh, uh, for instance, I was researching ServiceNow not too long ago and and I did everything like from reading or watching tutorials on like how to like how a user would, would log on and, and, and use the platform on YouTube and, and the stuff that the company puts out like the ServiceNow YouTube channel, you know, and I've done that with lots of companies just watching, uh, there are YouTube videos that they put out and uh, reading through the 10 K and the latest earnings report are the, are the first stops I make.
3: And again, that 10 K is the annual report uh, that's filed with the SEC. So uh, for anyone unfamiliar.
0: Yep, Yep. exactly. Great. SEC filings, YouTube. How about, how about it, Austin? Anything more, more uh, industry specific or publications that you're interested in?
1: Yeah. So there's this little website called Twitter that I I use it a lot for finding investment information. So, you know, common thing is we follow people that talk about investing stuff that we're interested in, right? Um, tons of great people out there. And if you're a fan of 7investing and you follow at 7investing on Twitter or any of us, you can see all of us. Uh, if you follow 7investing on Twitter, you can find us. Um, you'll see who we interact with on an individual level. But one thing I do with Twitter that a lot of people, especially the three Um, oldest people on this podcast, which I'm the youngest member on the team. I've never said that before. People might not know about this. You can create lists on Twitter. And so I have a list. I like founder led companies. I have a list called founder led that every time I come across a founder led company, I add the company and then I add the founders and maybe some of the executives of the company. And so a, a list and people can actually subscribe to this list. So if you tweet me and and ask me about it, I can can send you the link to where you can subscribe or you can make your own. But examples, I've got Atlassian on the list. I've got um, even some private companies, Substack. I've got people from Nutanix. I've got Colin Angle from uh, iRobot. I've got um, people from Pure Storage and PagerDuty. And the list goes on, right? But the reason I like that is because then you you can just look at updates from that list. And you can see different things that they tweet out. Uh one of my favorite follows is uh Okta and Todd McKinnon, their their founder and CEO. And perfect example of why this is awesome. Okta will put out a uh a report every it's either every year or twice a year called Okta at work. And they compile all of this data from their users and you can see what apps get the most usage and stuff like that. They tweet it out and and that's the first place I'll usually find it. And then in addition to Twitter, Um, I use a service called feedly, which basically you can pull in subscription or not subscriptions, but, um, blogs and feeds from websites and look, look at it all in one place. And then when I find a company, I'll add that to my feedly. And then every day I can go and look at it and see if, um, Okta updated their blog with a a new report or something like that. And that's how I kind of stay up to date on all of these product releases and different things that the companies are doing. And as far as publications, uh, I like Wired and The Economist um, just for different stuff about technology and the economy. And I try not to get into politics or anything like that. And I feel like they're both relatively neutral and they allow me to find kind of what's going on in in the world and then in technology.
0: Yeah, those are all... Great ideas uh, for finding information. Well, one other last one, in addition to everything that the rest of my team just said that I'm a big fan of, is the MIT technology review. And that looks a little bit further out. That's not as current of information, you know, like an annual report or a quarterly report would show you, but it definitely takes a look at those trends that are developing uh, that are a little bit farther out that I think that a forward-looking investor might be interested in. Space economy is very interesting right now. Cloud computing is very interesting right now. There's biotechnology is very interesting things like that, if you want to keep in touch with that's another publication that you might be able to look a little farther out for. Okay, so now we've got all this great information. We have all these annual reports. We can look at YouTube. We can look over Twitter, um, MIT Tech Review. Now we have all this information. How do we take that to the next step? How do we actually figure out what companies we actually want to buy now that we have a brokerage account? Austin, let's let's kick it back over to you. How do you figure out what your investments are going to be? Yeah, the that's
1: the thing, right? We could take all this information in, but it's useless or almost harmful if you have too much information and no way to filter it in a matrix to decide what you want to do with it. So um, I try to stay in the companies that I'm comfortable with, which are uh, generally enterprise software companies. So, you know, software as a service cloud, you hear those terms associated with them. And then sometimes I like uh, just innovative or innovative software companies that could be in the entertainment space or marketing or something like that. If it's, if it's not in that realm, I, you know, chances are I'm, I'm not as interested in it because I just don't understand it's like the Warren Buffett thing, a circle of competence. Right. Uh, Then if I, if I feel like it's, it's in my wheelhouse or something I can understand, then I'll add them to a watch list that I have built in Y charts, which is a service that we subscribe to, It's great for individual investors, advisors, um, and you could see data in tables really quick. And I look at a few different metrics and this allows me to do it really, really fast. So I'll share a few of those metrics, revenue growth. um, So that's uh, year over year percentage, their total revenue, because as their total revenue grows, it's harder to continue growing that as fast. So that's something I keep in mind, gross profit margin. uh, I like to see high gross profit margins as well as operating margin. That's an indicator of can this, is this company profitable or can they become profitable free cash flow, Uh, and then price to sales ratio, but not the current one forward one year. And I don't pay too much attention to that. I just, I just see if it's excessive or not. And by looking at these things in the table, I know kind of what, what numbers I'm generally interested in. If I see that it, it hits those milestones and I'm, I'm interested in, uh, what the company does and then how they, they rank on those metrics, then I'll go deeper. And that's when I'll start to look at the company's uh, investor relations page and their sec reports and stuff like that. Cause I want to make that decision really quick before I invest a lot of time into deciding uh, if I'm going to invest and then how much I'm going to invest.
0: And for anyone who is not clear from hearing this podcast so far, Austin is a big fan of tables and charts, very quantitative on a lot of those screens. Uh, Steve, tell me, though, about a different approach that you have. You you have what you call a top-down analysis perspective. What does that mean?
3: Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. It's one of those things that it was the, the natural way I gravitated uh, toward analysis anyway. But, you know, later you're like, oh, that's top-down. Um, Really, from a top-down analysis perspective, uh, my approach involves identifying which industries are going to really power the world's next phases of economic growth. Uh, now, these are things you know like artificial intelligence, cloud infrastructure, robotics, uh, but not just that. Uh, my wheelhouse is, is kind of wide that way, but um, I, I kind of narrow the list uh, from those industries to the strongest companies within those sectors and then really um, kind of do my research from there. Uh, I watched, you know, there's, there's several dozens of companies on my radar at any given moment, but, uh, I also love smaller underappreciated names that are well positioned to grow within those industries and take market share from competitors. Um, so really just, you know, starting really broad, narrowing it down. Um, and then, um, really better yet, I guess I, I love finding, um, first movers in in budding new markets. Uh, that's, that's something, you know, there are companies that carve out these niches for themselves and, and create their own industries. Uh, and the, uh, the, the data analysis, um, you know, companies like Splunk kind of come to mind for that companies that are actually making sense of unstructured data, Um, big data. That's another one of those markets. Uh, I also look very closely at market capitalizations relative, um, and growth potential relative to total addressable markets. So I want to know that this company, you know, has a a chance, uh, based on the strength of their product and loyalty customer, uh, loyalty to their products to actually grow, uh, significantly from where they are, uh, and actually take a huge chunk of their total addressable markets, um, you know, and in some cases, like my June recommendation, uh, I'm also looking at customers' relative inability to go anywhere else for those products. So not just companies that, um, you know, are better than their competitors, but are are so much better or have massive um, intellectual property advantages where really uh, their customers have no choice. So, uh, you know, we'll talk about moats and everything there, but that's a massive oversimplification of, of my approach, but uh, in general. You know starting very broad and uh, working from that top down uh, until you find the the most promising individual companies that
0: that really uh, raise your eyebrows and make you want to invest. Well, and it's really interesting, too, Steve. You know, as you were describing that, I was thinking of your most recent recommendations that you've made with Seven investing, you know, which we have in our recommendations page. Um, and so many of those are companies that that people really haven't heard of. Mm-hmm. Yet that's ironic because they actually are these smaller market cap innovative leaders in those spaces that really are going to matter in the next five, 10, 15 years.
3: Yeah. And I want companies that that are underappreciated. And I want companies that in another five to 10 years, people are like, man, why didn't I notice that? Or why didn't I think of investing? You know, some, some people may have heard of it you know, if they follow um, investing in stocks on Twitter, for example, but a lot of them just see these names, pass them by and don't recognize uh, the relative advantages they have
0: and their unique positioning. How about it, Matt Cochran, after you found a bunch of information out there, how do you decide which companies are the best ones to invest in?
2: Uh, You know, I mostly, I I think like you, Simon, I just, I'm looking for companies with economic moats. You know, I want to know what makes a company special, you know, whether that's network effects or high switching costs or their, their brand advantage or cost advantages. You know, I want to know what makes a company special. And then I want to look at the company's numbers to make sure they back up what I believe is an economic moat. You know, if a company has a moat, um, I want to see improving or at least stable margins, you know, uh, pricing power and and signs of staying power. And then, uh, you know, kind of like Steve, I want to use a bottoms up approach for companies, but it's preferably a top-down approach to growing industries. You know, I'm not interested in a coal power plant that's better than other coal power companies. I want to invest in companies with tailwinds at its back, uh, preferably. That can grow for a long time. So it can take market share while the industry it's in grows. And and then finally, I kind of just want to know what the company's uh, TAM, the Total Addressable Market is. You know, is this a company that has a long runway of growth or is it only a a niche product for a small industry? And there's nothing wrong with niche products or niche companies. But when that's the case, you have to be, I think, much more careful uh, buying at attractive valuations. When the team is larger, I believe you can get a little more loosey-goosey with valuation. But that, that's, that's what I look for.
0: And let's double-click on the, the sources of a moat there, because that might not be familiar to everybody listening to this podcast. We typically think of a moat as a way to protect pricing power or protect your profits from competitors out there. That's why we also call these competitive advantages. And Matt, you mentioned four, which are kind of the four that are most recognized out there. Switching costs, uh, brand or intangible assets, uh, network effect or permanent cost advantages could you pick one of those four to maybe just kind of talk a little bit more about how you think that form of a moat
2: uh sure uh, you know and i'm not looking for a specific one of those moats um but like let's take high switching costs uh you know like companies that uh that have all their data and run all their processes through oracle servers you know i've, I've heard like uh, I, I think like the i've heard the expression that that it's 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 it's, it's it's easier to have like dental surgery without painkillers than it is to take your data off an oracle server you know that's that's a high switching cost if a company wants to take their data and move it to a uh, a different uh server provider like it is a painful painful process They're, they're ripping out the dna of their company and trying to move it somewhere else that that gives oracle incredible pricing power and you know well I'm not necessarily a fan of Oracle today that has like propelled that company to you know one of the largest companies in the world and has given them uh, like by now decades of like uh, of staying power because of that mode
0: yeah absolutely and matt i know that one of the keys of your your top recommendation for this month for june here was a company that really benefits from the network effect we've kind of talked about that as as more users are joining uh, or using that company it becomes more valuable for everyone else on the platform too as well is that is that how you would think about the network effect
2: yeah absolutely so i mean just uh like for a network effect can be uh can can manifest itself in all in different ways but like um in my promo video, for instance, I talked about it, an art festival that's local to the South Florida area, and, and basically the idea is that the more the more artists that came, you know, the more the crowds grew every year, and as the crowds grew, more artists wanted to come, and it just kind of like uh, that 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 flywheel kind of just feeds itself, and uh, you know, so network effects are can be a very powerful advantage because you can come out with a superior product, but if you don't have all the the necessary players in that industry. Uh, participating in that you know it can be very hard to to disrupt a a company with a a significant network effect
0: yeah absolutely and so just to kind of recap what what all of uh, my fellow advisors just mentioned, you know Austin was talking about having a screen and tables that that field a lot of different metrics that he feels are very important uh, for the financials of a company and how those are changing over time. Steve talked about the tops the top down approach. That's looking at industries and how those are changing and looking for the innovators that are really at the forefront of those changes, um, leading how how markets are changing out there. And then Matt just described a couple of of different ways that you can protect your competitive advantage or competitive moat uh, through network effects, through brand advantages, through switching costs, or from permanent cost advantages that you have. These are all great ideas on how to find uh, advantages in, in the in the stock market. When you're investing in companies, don't just invest in the headlines or what's recently going on out there. Think about long-term. How can a company protect its profits? How are those markets changing? And how are those important metrics looking over time as well? So I think those are all great ideas uh, for investors to start, start looking at for companies. So now we have information at our at our fingertips. We've kind of figured out how we want to invest and what kind of companies we want to invest in. Let's address the third piece of Of this as well, which is how large of a position should we take? And of course, this is different for everybody. There's no correct answer because investing is so personal. We don't want to make it seem like this is the only way to invest. But in terms of capital allocation or or investment allocation in this case, um, how do you generally think about sizing an investment? Matt, I'll start with you. you. Do you go all in on the first investment when you find something you like? Do you add over time or do you do something differently? How do you think about buying a new stock? Yeah, Simon.
2: So I actually, I think this can be a bit personal. So I wouldn't necessarily try to like copy other people's, like how they do this. But I, I basically, I base it, I have three principles for building out my portfolio. The first principle is like I move slowly buying just a little at a time. And that first bite can be quick even before I'm done fully researching a company. But I, I start small. And if the thesis holds and as my confidence grows in the company and as I learn more, I'll add over time. You know, I'm never too much in a rush to buy a company that I'm not familiar with. But, um, and I can also sell those small positions quickly too. Like if I realize like as I learn more and I'm like, well, this actually, this is not what I thought it was, like I'll I'll sell quickly. Um, But I think of that as time diversification. I don't want to just diversify across companies and industries. I also want to diversify across time. And the second principle is to become a major position in my portfolio, which would, I would say is anything over 5%, the stock must do a lot of the heavy lifting. So this is especially true for my largest positions. I will keep buying a company to a point, but eventually positions need to earn their keep, so to speak. Um, you know, And then the third principle is my largest positions are those that I believe won't lose a lot of money. So for example, Shopify and Paycom are two companies that I own. And if I had never trimmed them, they would have been top positions in my company now but I personally believe their valuations are are frothy and I know drawdowns draw in the future are likely. So I don't want them at too high of a percentage if and when that happens. So these three principles, they they naturally bias my portfolio so that my largest positions are ones that I've owned for some time and have grown into those positions. They're, they've they been successful in my portfolio. They're the ones I'm most familiar with and they're the ones I believe won't lose me a lot of money. And and that's how I like it. I, you know, I want to know my... positions better than my 1% positions. And buying small also gives me permission to buy companies I wouldn't otherwise buy. So for instance, I would have never bought like a MongoDB if I, you know, if I felt like I had to make it a large position right away or fully understand it first, you know, like, like I could even maybe even ever fully grasp like NoSQL databases. Uh, But by buying small, it allowed me to get in at MongoDB at a really good price. And it's a multi-bagger for me, you know, in my portfolio. And, uh, you know, by, by giving myself permission to buy small positions, it, it's helped me like take a little more risk with my investments, you know? And, and I, I understand theoretically like why a, a limited portfolio or a concentrated portfolio, uh, can be better. Like why invest, you know, in your 25th best idea when you could invest more money in your first or second idea. But if fits my personality better, like, uh, if I couldn't invest, if if I, if I try to keep a concentrated portfolio, I, I would I would tend to be probably too risk averse, and so by allowing myself to buy small positions, uh, it helps me uh, one diversify a little more, but also m- mostly because it, it helps me buy companies that I wouldn't I wouldn't buy and make a large position in my portfolio. So those are the three principles I use when building out my portfolio.
0: Yeah, those are some excellent principles. And, and just to restate what you just mentioned also, Matt, that there is, investing is so personal. There's no right answer to this question. I think one of the biggest advantages we have at Seven Investing is that we have different styles and we can see different things. Uh, Austin, let me come to you next. How do you think about position sizing your portfolio? Yeah, Matt's point at the beginning is so
1: important. It's very personal. It's easy to to feel pressured or something like that to like follow somebody else's or Follow us and and what we say because um, we have experience or whatever, especially for newer invested, investors. But just like Matt said, I would never advise or recommend anybody to follow anyone else's style exactly because you have to do what's comfortable for you. So what I've the way I manage my portfolio has changed over time as I've I've learned as an investor. And the the first thing I want to say is that's okay and that should happen to you as an investor, and I know we have people who are maybe just starting or maybe not even investing yet that listen to this podcast as well as people that are much more experienced. And so if you're in that new campaign, um, it's okay if you change over time. You're not stuck in what you decide right now. So when I first started investing, I used to add the same amount to every company and then I would just let the performance of those companies decide. And I would have up to 50 companies in my portfolio Uh, as I was learning and as I was learning how to be an investor and and just learning what suited me. And that's okay. The thing about that is you'll hear, well, you're over diversified, but if you let the companies uh, outperform, if they're going to outperform and don't trim winners and stuff like that, you still can outperform the market by a wide margin, which is what we've already shown with our seven investing recommendations. We have, uh, three months of seven, seven picks, which is what, tw- around 21 companies. And we're outperforming the market pretty pretty handily. That's a short amount of time, but we're, we're beating the market that shows what can happen. Over time I've transitioned. And so now I have kind of a tiered based approach and it's based on my confidence level in the company, low, medium, and high. Low, and this is the amount of my portfolio that I will invest in a company. Low is I'll put about one to three percent of of my assets in that company. Medium is five to eight percent, and then high is eight to ten percent. And just like Matt, I mean, I'll let them. They have to earn it from that point. Uh, the most that I'm willing to really put in is ten percent. If the company doubles from there and it becomes twenty percent of my portfolio, that's fine. But I'm not going to add to it at that point. I'm going to I'm going to use. Uh, my money to add to other ideas. And the caveat is that I have a lot of years of still adding to my portfolio, which is why I'm comfortable with a 20% position or a 25% position. Uh, I know that I'm going to continue to add over time. That is more stressful to have a 25% position in your portfolio for sure. And then a, a key for me is I I never say no to investing in a company just because it's expensive or it's it's overvalued. I'll at least open a starter position because the opportunity cost of not investing in the biggest winners is far more than losing a hundred percent by starting an investment in a a great company and a leader that goes to zero, which in my opinion, if you're truly invested in a, a great company and a leader, it's rare for them to go to zero unless there's a fraud or something like that, that nobody sees. This isn't speculative companies that are up for no reason. These are truly leaders. An example I have is, I mean, Amazon has almost always been called expensive. It's up 2,000% over the last 10 years. That erases so many 50% losers and so many zeros. Uh, Shopify, always been expensive, up 2,300% over the last five years. And Zoom, always been expensive, up 250% over the last 1.5 years. I would, I, I try to do my best, to not say no to a company just because of valuation.
0: Oh, both good points there too, Austin. You know, don't say no because of valuation. Steve, how about you? What do you think about um, putting money to work out there?
3: Uh, uh, the uh, don't say no to a company because of valuation, it makes me think of uh, Tesla right off the bat, like when everybody called me crazy for calling it a value stock last, about a year ago now. And uh, I I remember
0: that too, Steve. And
3: and I opened up a starter position at like $210 a share. And that was kind of where I stood. And I sold some of those in the 900s. But uh, yeah, and I actually, I'll echo that sentiment that I really love dipping my toes in the water with starter positions. One, it makes you watch the company more closely if you have those. Uh, and sh- sometimes those starter positions become regular sized positions on their own. Uh, but if I'm buying stocks with a long-term mindset, I don't mind dollar cost averaging in for the first couple of quarters or even years, because these are companies that I'm buying with the intention of holding for decades. There are several stocks that I've held for at least a decade and, uh, really, you know, the biggest gains are going to come down the road and whether the the stock becomes the the size position that I want. Um through good old fashioned share price appreciation or through my own additions i don't particularly care but uh I just you know again keep in mind those biggest gains uh should come in the later years of holding those investments, and i don't mind uh even looking wrong for a while in order to be right in a big way over the long term so i mean if i if I nibble at a stock and it falls and I liked it at that previous price price i'm happy if I nibble at a stock and it rises i'm happy i'm at least partially participating in the gains, even if it's not a full-size position for me. So,
0: Yeah, those are all really great points. Maybe one more that I might add for my investing and, and thinking about allocation is just, it's kind of like what Austin said, that you can ease into positions and add more to them over time. I tend to do the same thing. I tend to think also that there's an informational edge combined with a time arbitrage that that is of the benefit of the individual investor Uh, What the heck does that mean? What that means to me is that there's a lot of institutional money that follows spreadsheets and models and financial metrics that the companies are putting out that are just obsessively being looked at. And that's informing these price targets and these short term moves of the stock. But a lot of times those are really missing the longer term strategy and the information that's not contained in those financials of today? And what can that mean tomorrow? Tesla's a great example, like Steve just mentioned, I think a lot of people were looking just at the number of cars that Tesla was selling, and we're missing the longer term opportunities that Elon Musk is so good at doing as he's innovating the entire transportation industry. So let that be a part of your investing too, in my mind, I think that's very, uh, that's a huge advantage that time is on our side. In fact, you know, back to the the point that we were making about everybody has a different perspective on this. We do have seven principles that we tend to follow here at Seven Investing. You can find them directly on our website, seveninvesting.com at the top right, the About Us tab. It lists out all seven of our principles uh, that we tend to follow. And the very first one of them is it's personal. You know, Your money matters the most to you. You want to make sure that you're comfortable with your own risk tolerance, uh, with your own investing style. And we, we try to encourage that through giving a full buffet of options to choose from every single month. Uh, this has been a great podcast. We really think that we hope that this has been very helpful for anyone who's new to investing is really interested in finding more information and figuring out how to put money to work as you're actually buying stocks. We hope that you'll also take an opportunity to reach back out to us. Our email is at, info at 7investing.com. Our Twitter handle is at 7investing. We're always glad to talk about the stock market, about companies. And if you are interested in seeing our actual recommendations, please consider signing up for a 7investing subscription. Uh, Austin, Steve, Matt, any final points as we close out the podcast here today?
1: I am mystified. Hertz, a $400 million oh. market cap company, just got granted approval to sell up to $1 billion in shares to be continued. I have no idea how this is going to work. I think I, I, I'm at a loss for words. I don't get it.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Talk to Austin about Hertz or send us a message about Hertz. What you think? How about, how about you, Matt? What do you think? Or what are you looking Uh, at out there? I got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to Matt about his three principles that he follows for investing. Uh, Steve, how about you? Anything else to close this out? No, except hurts, hurts my brain. <laughs>
3: I, don't like, <laughs> I don't like thinking about that. That offering just is, yeah, it's it's something. This is a bankrupt company. And uh, anyway, no, there's uh, the the markets aren't always rational, and uh, people aren't always rational, and and it's it's scary. But uh, the best we can do is uh, continue to steadily constantly invest in high quality businesses and uh and
0: in sh- that will just while well, the rest will take care of itself i think we'll, we'll close it out with that excellent point steve on behalf of steve simington matt cochran and austin lieberman i'm simon erickson we are the team of advisors here at seven investing we are here to empower you to invest in your future thanks for listening and until next time